I think the Advent season technically started last week, uh, but I was gone. Thank you for providing that for me. Um, although I told Paige I'm a little intimidated following following him. Uh, so we'll be in Genesis 3.15 this morning, and we'll actually read uh, 8 through 15. But let's pray. Our God, this morning as uh, I'm involved in scattering the seed of your word, uh, I ask that we would be here a people who receives it with eagerness. And uh, by your spirit, I ask you help us to strive to understand it and not just to ignore it and leave it alone for the, the, the devil to, to swipe from us, but let us internalize it with joy. And when persecution and and trial comes upon us as a result of the word, may we not be ones who wither in fear. I ask that you guard us uh, by that that you would prevent us from being caught up by the concerns of the world and the lies of, of material abundance, that those things not choke us out and make us fruitless Christians. Instead, may we be a congregation that receives this word and seeks in your power to understand it, not be hearers only, but also doers. May we, may we be ones who, who bear fruit uh, 30, 60, and 100 folds. Fold. In, in Christ's name we ask, amen. Okay, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Genesis 3, 8 through 15. This is the fall, right after the fall, Adam and Eve. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man said to his wife, man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is God's word. You may be seated. start with a quote from Michael Horton here. He says that the Christian faith is a counter-drama to all the mega-narratives and meta-narratives of this passing age. Ancient, medieval, modern, and postmodern. It speaks of the triune God who existed eternally before creation and of ourselves as characters in His unfolding plot. 
Created in God's image, yet fallen into sin, we have our identity shaped by the movement of this dramatic story from promise to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This drama also has its powerful props, such as preaching baptism and the supper, the means by which we are no longer spectators, but are actually included in the cast. Having exchanged our rags for the riches of Christ's righteousness, we now find our identity in Christ. Instead of, being, instead of God being a supporting actor in our life story, we become a part of the cast that the Spirit is recruiting for God's drama. I like that quote because he, he paints the picture of, of this life and, and this world and the creation of the universe as a drama um, written by the divine playwright. And that's a good way to think about it. And Genesis 3 is an important part of that drama. It really sets the stage for the rest of the narrative. And verse 15 um, gives us a look at, at the drama of salvation from kind of a cosmic perspective. We stand back at Genesis 15 and see our salvation from a, a, a wide-angle view. Here at the beginning of the story, the, the playwright signals to us the conclusion But he doesn't give it away, necessarily. He signals the end. He gives us hope. But there is still a a great deal of remaining suspense. So that we we know that the agony of of spiritual warfare has to unfold. And we know that by reading the Bible and and by our own lives. And and much of this warfare has to take place before the conclusion um, comes to an end. But we know and we have hope that the the same mind who composed the play, the the divine playwright, the same mind who composed the beginning, also composed the end. So he will not forget that which he signals here at the beginning. The story begins with the creator and his creation, and he declares it to be good. one, One creature in particular is dear to him. Man, created in God's image. And he gave us dominion over his good creation as his image bearers. But he left us with with a test, with the tree in the middle of the garden. And we failed. Instead of trusting him in gratitude for all of his provision for all the other fruit, we had to have that fruit. Because Satan came, he deceived Eve, and she ate, and she gave it to Adam to eat. So this drama has come to kind of a crux, a a, a why in the plot. And we don't know which which direction God will head. What is God going to do at this juncture? He can't say, well, well, never mind. I know I said that if you eat of the tree, you you surely will die. But how about a mulligan? I'll just let it go. He can't say that. That's literally impossible for a just God to do, to go back on his word. But at the same time, this creature, this creature that's near and dear to his heart, that's created in God's image, that, that, that is exercising dominion over his creation or meant to, is he just going to let them die now at the beginning of the story? Will, will he allow this, this corrupt general of the angels, this defector, to kind of take this special race away from him so quickly? And, of course, surely God has a, a greater plan for his creature um, than, than just to have them die. 
course he's not surprised this whole thing is a part of the grand narrative which he's already composed beginning to end and Genesis 3.15 signals the hope that we have as the race born of Eve's womb and that's important language there the hope that we have as the race of Eve's womb it will be a toilsome journey but we, we will we are promised here triumph over this ancient serpent in the end as Bible readers, we know kind of the ups and downs of, of God's people um, on this, this great battlefield of history. And not really just as Bible readers, but, but as Christians, we know this warfare. And as Horton's, Horton said, we're not just spectators of this play, but we are members of the cast. So I, th- I kind of think of Genesis 3.15 as this promise is almost like a fine wine or, or last night I was reading or not reading watching these videos about people making cheese it was awesome blue cheese they, get, they put them in these these caves and they get all moldy and it's glorious preach it brother yeah <laughs> Genesis 3.15 is like that it starts out small and it builds and it matures and for us it's this robust promise complex rich and it's so valuable for us and much of it and its mystery has been revealed for us after Christ, but there's still still suspense remaining in this play that has to kind of come to its final consummation. Um, so this little verse is a powerful verse. It contains a powerful assurance of hope for believers. And as God's image bearers, as seed of Eve, we will triumph over the ancient, ancient serpent. That, that's the point. We will, as the seed of Eve, triumph over the serpent. And I pray that this sermon brings that promise to bear on our lives a little more today. Um, So we'll get into the text here. And the first part will probably be less enthusiastic about than the latter half. But but it's the painful reality in which we live that kind of give birth to the the hope and the triumph um, that we're promised here. So we'll begin by looking at the enmity that we have uh, with the serpent. Uh, I hate snakes. I'm an avowed enemy of snakes. I remember the time I, I started to dislike them. I didn't mind them as kids. And then one time I picked one up, just a little garter snake, and it wrapped around my wrists. And it just gave me the willies all of a sudden. I didn't, never experienced that before, and I got rid of it. And then as a fisherman hiking, fishing creeks, they would start to slither all of a sudden and make me jump. And the more times that happened, the more I hated snakes. So I, I have an extreme dislike for snakes. Um, but it's a sanctified hatred because the Lord hates the serpent too here. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, we read this text a few days ago as part of our kind of family Advent readings, and Kelly asked me what I thought about the the, the poor creature, the snake. <laughs> kind of not his fault. He got hijacked by the by the by the devil, and then here he is getting cursed to, to crawl around on his belly. It's not quite fair. It's like the poor guy in Men in Black who gets hijacked by the, his body by the alien. Um, is it really his fault? Um, 
And I think, I think part of the answer, at least, is that God likes to give us physical representations of spiritual realities. And so, um, you, know, you think of the, the Lord's Supper or baptism or, or the rainbow. These things are meant to remind us of spiritual truths. And they're representations to us. They're seals. They're, they're palpable illustrations to us. So we see that, speaking kind of in broad strokes, I know this isn't true of every person, but humanity as a whole, I think, has a disdain for snakes. Uh, let's see if I can say this word without choking on it. Uh, Aphidiophobia, a a fear of snakes. I saw a Gallup poll from 2001 that ranked it as the highest fear for Americans. Or phobia. Um, snakes are creepy and gross and they remind us of the fall and and they can kill us we see them in their craftiness the way they're there and then they slither away and they're gone in this grass or rocks and we know to watch out for them when we hike because some of them can can kill us in our lives um my my uncle ed lives in las cruces and he went to pick up a board or something one time and picked it up and there was a snake under there rattlesnake and it bit him on the thumb and of course, you know he he's fine, uh, but he must you know, or rattlesnake venom is hemotoxic. It, it destroys red blood cells and really just eats your flesh. Um, so his thumb is fine, but it's not going to win any any uh, hitchhikers uh, beauty pageants. <laughs> it, it's maimed. It's it, it's not good. But we should also be reminded when we see snakes of the hope of the serpent's curse when we see him crawling on his belly. The snake has no legs. He, he slithers around. I look to try to find... Apparently there's like fossils with snake legs on them and stuff, but I don't know. I didn't spend a lot of time on it, but I don't know what the snake looked like before. But we should be reminded as we see them that, that, that he's cursed. And due to the enmity of Eve's offspring toward the snake, our first impulse is really to kill them many times. People will kind of almost kill themselves trying to swerve to miss like a squirrel or something, but they'll run straight over a snake and back up to run over it again, right? We are um, in conflict with them. So the snake serves as a visual reminder to us, both of the danger of the serpent and of the serpent's curse. But, of course, the enmity between us and the serpent goes far beyond this uh, aphidiophobia. It, it's, that, 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 that fear is more of an image for us. The playwright here has built into this drama a problem that, that's seeking resolution. And the woman and the serpent uh, will be at war. Her seed and his seed. He says, and this is interesting, God says, I will put enmity between you. He, he writes the story. This enmity will be perpetuated throughout generations. It's an ongoing conflict. He says, between your offspring and her, her offspring, or your seed and her seed. It's interesting to think about who, who are the woman's seed and who are the serpent's seed. Well, the, serp, the, the, the seed of the woman has to be Christ, Right? He shall bruise your head. And um, of course, that's true. But I think it's actually jumping the gun a little bit here for this promise. That there's more to it than that. Um, seed here is a collective noun. It's her offspring. 
So I think that if you look at the whole of the biblical um, account, that the seed of the woman is, is the righteous. It's the people of God. Remember, Genesis 3.15 is the, the, the zoomed out view of salvation, the satellite image view. The great question here is, will God's image bearers be defeated by the serpent? I think that's the question we're dealing with. Will these image bearers, who are supposed to have dominion, really be defeated by the serpent? And the answer, of course, is no, that in God's genius, we will not be defeated. And ultimately, that does culminate in Christ. But it really is a promise to the collective seed of the woman. Now, who, who are the seed of the serpent? You know, does the devil procreate? Does he have children? It's no coincidence, in my opinion, that the story of Cain's murder of Abel follows on the heels of this story. And the lineage of Cain follows that of, of righteous Seth. So I think that the seed of the serpent are the unrighteous, the people of the world. When Paul describes our our salvation in Colossians, he says, we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Or or in John, um, Jesus talks to to the Pharisees and he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Or in 1 John chapter 3, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Or again in 1 John 3 verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So I think we see that the offspring of Eve are the righteous, the, the people of God, and the offspring of the devil are the wicked. Now, of course, this doesn't mean, as Michael was just speaking about, we don't hate our unbelieving neighbors. It's not, well, they're the devil's spawn. You know, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But still, that palpable enmity exists. Jesus said, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Uh, I know many of you come from like a more charismatic background and, and um, themes of spiritual warfare may have been overhyped or misused. Um, perhaps Satan has almost achieved the status of, of a second deity of rivaling God. Um, and, and while that's, those things are unhelpful, one thing those folks seem to get right in my, in, from what I've seen in the way they live is they live like there's actually a spiritual war going on. Like it or not, as the people of God, the seed of, uh, of the woman, we are in this knockdown, drag-out fight. And it's a hard and grueling fight. And we, If we've ever wondered why is life so hard, Genesis 3 is, is the big picture answer. If life is easy, it probably means we're not very threatening to the enemy. So we always need to keep in the back of our minds that this wartime life is a product of the divine playwright's mind. He's planned this out, and it's all leading toward this great and glorious pur- purpose. Uh, I think of a soldier on the front lines of a, of a horrible battle. 
And for that man, that little pawn in, in the great scheme of things, it's hard for him to make sense of the, the mud and the blood and the, and the pain, right? And, and, but he, he, if he's a good soldier, puts his head down, plows on, knowing that he's participating in something bigger than himself. He has to kind of trust his, his authorities. Of course, human military powers get it wrong. They, they lose sight of the big picture. They strategize poorly. Um, they, they put soldiers in places they shouldn't because of ignorance or lack of skill, uh, self-aggrandizing politics, whatever. But God doesn't do those things. So we may be like the soldier confused in the mud and the blood and the guts, but we do know that we can trust the higher-ups. That God's plan is always perfect. He's always seeking our best interest. Um, and this, this battle is driving towards something. It's driving toward the victory of the seed of Eve and toward the glory of God. So we will win. This text assures us of that. But we also see here that the serpent um, does get his day in the sun. We'll look now at the, the bruising of the heel of the seed of Eve. Um, I was telling Stan before, I've I was, been listening to this podcast about the, the Pacific Front in World War II. And it's interesting, the this, this storyteller makes the point that, that um, the, the fighting in North Africa with Rommel and, and those guys is probably the closest in World War II. It comes to kind of gentlemen's warfare. But the Pacific is, is not gentlemen's warfare. The Pacific is a nasty theater. The, the Japanese were nasty. They fought dirty. They, they would creep over at night, suicidally jump in a foxhole to, to stab one or two guys, knowing they were going to die, just to rack the nerves of the enemy. They were totally willing to mutilate the bodies of the dead, whereas in North Africa, both sides would, would bury their, the, the enemy's dead out of human respect and dignity. They were crafty and they were skilled in the art of of fear and of killing and of war in the Pacific theater. Um, And the devil, the devil is not going to fight gentlemen's warfare. He he also is a nasty and a crafty enemy, far more capable than we give him credit for. So we do rejoice at the, the promise, he shall bruise your head. But it's also hard to ignore, the serpent will gain some purchase. He, he will bruise the heel. So the war will be costly. We will feel the blows of the serpent. And at this point, I think we usually think of the cross. And, and rightly so, we, when we read this verse, that the devil, he played a role in the cross and he bruised Christ's heel. It's interesting, at the Last Supper, John 13, 18, Jesus says that the scripture will be fulfilled, referring to Psalm 41, 9, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And also Luke tells us that, that the devil entered Judas before he went and did what he did. So at the cross, the serpent did strike the heel of Jesus. And Jesus did, of course, effectively smash his head when he atoned for sin and defeated death. But keep in mind, Eve's seed is a collective group encompassing all of God's people. And so the serpent uh, really has been bruising the heel of that seed and will continue to um, from the beginning. Revelation chapter 12, if you want to turn over there, is really an incredible picture of this. 
Revelation 12. It's really a difficult passage, of course, and I don't claim to have understanding of all of it or even studied all of its nuances, but I think the major point is fairly clear. Um, I'll start in verse 1, Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns on his heads, and seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. It goes on into more um, imagery. Um, But the reliable sources I've read on this think that it's referring to the devil's interaction with the Old Testament saints. See that idea kind of in the crown of 12 stars. Um, and I think that, that, that it seems to be referring to kind of the serpent's anticipation as, as Israel seeks to kind of birth or bring forth the Messiah. He's constantly resisting that, always wanting to devour that. I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the image of a woman. I think John had to have an awareness that this this promise connects in some way to Genesis 3.15. But it's not just the Old Testament saints either. In, in verse 17 we see also, it's all, it's all saints, it's the New Covenant saints as well. Um, 12.17 Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the serpent's been trying to attack the people of God, the seed of Eve, for a long time, and he continues to do so. And before moving on, I want to practically think about what that kind of looks like in our lives. I think sometimes we have one of those days, you know, like... The alarm doesn't go off. We can't find our keys. We have a flat tire on the way to work. We screw up at work, come home and fight with our family. And we say, well, the devil's really after me today. Well, he may be. (laughs) But I think we should think bigger than that and craftier than that. We should give him more credit. He's nasty and wily, and he doesn't care whether or not you have a good day. He'd actually like to help you along with a 50-year streak of good days as long as he can chip away at your faith while he's at it. Paul says Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So the thing that, that the serpent wants most is apostasy. He wants people walking away from God and following lies. Peter says he prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And the thing he most wants to consume is our faith. It's our belief in God. That's what he began with. Did God really say? I think the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils gives us a good look at Satan's bag of tricks um, and helps us to kind of prioritize our objectives as we construct a a battlefield strategy, if you will. Um, Jesus explains the parable to his disciples. He says that there's a seed scattered along the path and the birds came in and ate it and, and that that is the word heard but not understood. 
snatched away by the devil and never really takes root. The seed that's sown on rocky ground is is word that's received with joy, but it springs up, it has no roots, and, and when persecution comes, people fall away. The seed sown among the thorns is the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches come in and choke it out. So I think in light of this parable, we need to ask, how do we know when the devil is gaining ground on us? Perhaps when our desire to understand the word is weak. That rather than seeking out opportunities to hear and receive the word for our nourishment and sustenance by working to understand it, we just leave it. Leave it there for the devil to take away from us. When we enthusiastically perhaps accept the word of God, but we feel pressure from those Satan's spawn, from the world, as a result of the Bible, and we wither and we hide. Or perhaps when that lie, that, that creation ranks higher than creator, that lie subtly creeps into our hearts. The care of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, they choke out our fruit, our possessions, our financial security, jobs, education, family matters prevent us from living unto God's glory, from bearing fruit to Him. See, those things sound mundane, but those are the things we have to take up arms against. Our fight, really, looking at this parable, is to win on three fronts, is to hear the Word, believe the Word, and live the Word. If our enemy can cut out any one of those things, he'll be happy. So that gives us something of a picture of what our crafty um, enemy is up to. Calvin says that God's curse here of Satan in in Genesis 3.15 was was spoken to him, but it was spoken more for our benefit. He says for two reasons, really. The first is that man may learn to be aware of Satan as a most deadly enemy. Then... Also that he may contend against him with the assured confidence of victory. So it's to that, that assured confidence of victory which we'll turn now. And it's really, this is the Advent or Incarnation portion of the sermon. Um, so this is looking at the bruising of the head of the serpent. And I, I don't think we can plumb the depths of the meaning of the words her offspring or her seed. Those are some profound words. At Christmas time, of course, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, which generally means the the arrival, the birth of this baby who would grow up to die on a cross for our sins. But I want to I want us to stop and think for a moment about these these words, the arrival of a baby, a a, a human baby. You'll have to pardon me. I know some of you don't appreciate this art form, but this is too good. Um, <laughs> I love the way that Christian rapper uh, Shylin put. He has a song entitled "Hypostatic Union." How many how many musicians have a song entitled "Hypostatic Union"? So, he, you can forgive me. He says, "By faith we believe this amazing Jesus, who made Uranus and Venus, became a fetus." Such a secret that if anybody knew it, months later, he's covered in amniotic fluid. The subject of the Gospels, praise of the Apostles, armed with eye sockets, armpits, and nostrils. I mean, that gets at the heart of it, of his humanity. 
He goes on to say later, how can we explain how the sun abundant with fame made thunder and rain now has hunger pains? Jesus is human. <laughs> like us in all respects except for sin. We saw that some in Sunday school today. The importance of Jesus' humanity. This is something that the early church fought and died for. And it wasn't just because they loved to argue over the picayune details of theological controversy. I think sometimes we think of it that way. These crotchety old church clerics saying, Homoousius, no homoousius. But this was important to get right because if Christ is not fully God or truly God and truly man, we have no salvation. Put that in a Genesis 15 context. If we don't have a Messiah who is, in fact, seed of Eve, we don't have the victory of Eve's seed. In Galatians 4.4, 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. I don't think he's necessarily talking about the virgin birth. There, I think he's talking about the fullness of Christ's humanity, and I think possibly he's alluding to Genesis 3.15 rather than the virgin birth. But we'll get there in due time, and we'll decide then. But um, it was absolutely essential that Jesus be in flesh, that he be human. Because not a one of us, not a one corrupted sinner could fulfill this promise that Eve's seed would bruise the head of the serpent. And yet, Eve's seed has to be the one that fulfills that promise. So, here we have the incarnate Son of God. Athanasius said that by death, man has gained power... um, By man, death has gained power over men. By the word made man, death has been destroyed and life raised up anew. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So now that he's became a man, now that he's done that for us, now we, in Christ, have the opportunity of joining with him in crushing the serpent's head. Remember, we are those people in Revelation 12:17 that the dragon became furious at the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I think if I'm interpreting this correctly... We're the subject of that fury, of, of the serpent. We have a war on our hands with a nasty enemy. Revelation 12 calls him the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That, that individual hates our guts. He wants to devour us. He wants to crush our head, but he will only bruise our heel. And Christ Eve's seed are more than conquerors. So this morning I want you to share and rejoice in the confidence that the Apostle Paul has in Romans 16, verse 20, where he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Amen.